I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. To get to the truth of the matter about the geopolitics behind Qatar hosting the World Cup, we have with us the great, the incomparable, my very dear friend, Dr. John Alterman, who is our Brzezinski chair at CSIS, a senior vice president and the head of our Middle East program. John, thanks for being here. It's good to see you, Andrew. So there has been so much discussion and controversy surrounding Qatar's hosting of the 2022 World Cup. It started out on the wrong foot, but you know, I don't think we really want to get into like what happened with FIFA, the bid, all, everybody knows that stuff. What are the geopolitics behind this World Cup as you see them? You are the Brzezinski chair in geostrategy. And that's why I'm coming to you. And you're also our Middle East program director, and you know a lot about Qatar. What is so funky about this World Cup? You know, one of the, the things that I think is interesting is, on the one hand, the World Cup is a really global scale event. Qatar is not a global scale country. Qatar is a country with 300,000, maybe 325,000 citizens fewer citizens than citizens of Washington, D.C. And you don't normally think of that as the venue for something that is global, that is world-class. One of the things you've seen from a lot of the wealthier states in the Gulf, from the UAE, from Qatar, is a sense that despite our size, we can be world-class. And part of the way they're world-class is it's not just Qataris and Qatar, they're 90% of the population is non-Qataris. And the government of Qatar used the World Cup and used the opportunity, the opportunity to invest about $220 billion for a relatively small country to take the country into a different place, to have people know that it's there, that it exists, to build infrastructure, to motivate Qataris to up their game, to integrate different parts of the Qatari government and show they can execute. I think in a lot of ways, the Qataris saw this as a big target that they could organize a whole series of governmental activities around, including, by the way, changing the way they work with foreign workers and modernizing that in a way that the other Gulf states are are getting to, but are still behind Qatar. So I think they saw this as, let's do something big, let's embrace it, let's make it work. They're getting more criticism than they thought. But I think that they see this idea of, of punching above their weight as something they have a unique opportunity to do and something they really want to do. John, one of the things that a lot of the criticism behind this has been that a lot of the workers died, that they were underpaid, they were ill-housed, their medical care wasn't good. And so, you know, one of the things Qatar is getting a lot of criticism about is not just the way they're dealing with cultural issues like alcohol and and gender and and sexual orientation, but in building this 200 and so something billion dollar infrastructure, they didn't treat the workers very well. And, and how, does, how does that make the United States and other Western countries and Asian countries that are modern societies feel 
when they see what Qatar did. Look, on the one hand, I don't want to apologize for the way any country treats migrant workers, including, frankly, the United States. And I want to engage in a whole bunch of whataboutism and, and this and that. But right. the reality is the world is full of workers who are treated poorly. Often they have problems with legal status. Often people try to exploit them. Qatar has made a lot of progress in dealing with that issue, but it is no secret that the economies of the Gulf grow so quickly in part because they have a low-wage, high-skilled workforce subsidizing a high-wage, low-skilled workforce, which is the national workforce. Qatar did a lot to normalize the status of these migrant workers to ensure that their visa wasn't tied to a specific employer, which often led to abuses of employers saying, well, if you don't do this, if, if you try to protest for better wages, I will get you shipped out of the country. So that's in a different place than it was 10 years ago. Is there a way to go? I would argue there's a way to go in all those places. And I think there's a way to go in the United States. If you think about even the food we eat, the clothes we wear, a lot of them are, are made by workers. And I would argue that, that worker rights are something we all have to think about. Where's the line between bargains and exploitation? And that's something, frankly, Qatar doesn't have a monopoly on. Some of the stuff they've been called out for is proper. Some of it is people, you know, calling the kettle black. I think some of it's appropriate, some of it's inappropriate. And to me, one of the things we have to look at is, is the progress going in the right direction? I think in Qatar, any fair assessment is the progress is in the right direction. There is a lot further to go. And the people who care about it now should care about it in a year and two years and three years after the attention's gone off of Qatar to keep Qatar and other states, including the United States, moving in the direction of ensuring that the people aren't exploited and, and can live healthy lives with nutrition and, and all the and safety and all the kinds of things that, that you want workers to have. John, I, you know, I'm going to pronounce Qatar and Qatar a million different ways in this podcast. It is so not I, Qatar. Right. Well, and some people do pronounce that way. And they're wrong. And they're wrong. So I'm, gonna, I'm just going to apologize, you know, right off the bat for my mispronunciations. Okay. But let me ask you this. Is Qatar an important ally for the United States? And if so, how are we considering the progress they're making? You know, we haven't always been on such good terms. So I would argue that Qatar has always been trying to triangulate a little bit. It shares a huge gas field with Iran. It can't afford to get too far away from Iran. It shares a border with Saudi Arabia, a lot of links with Saudi Arabia. It can't afford to get too far off course with Saudi Arabia, and they've been using the United States for 20, 25 years as a third wedge of that triangle to try to balance between Iran and Saudi Arabia. After this crisis between Qatar and Saudi Arabia, you saw the Qataris desperately try to rebuild ties with the United States. Initially, in the Trump administration, it was really hard. But they tried and they tried and they tried. And frankly, 
They made a lot of progress with the Trump administration. And then it came time for the Biden administration. They said, okay, new page. And they saw the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan as a really important opportunity for them to demonstrate just how important they could be. My understanding is the countries said nothing is too much. It's not too expensive. You don't have to worry about uh, our regulations. All They provided whatever conceivable assistance they could provide to the United States. Other countries in the Middle East and, and further were saying, you know, we have rules, we have regulations, doesn't work that way. Our sovereignty and the Qataris said, do it all. And they built a stronger relationship with the Biden administration. Some other Gulf ambassadors say, you know, the Qataris are totally in bed with the Biden administration. I don't think it's that. I think the Biden administration has a certain amount of circumspection, distance about all of the Gulf Arab states. But for states that are used to being the favorite Arab state of the United States, I think the Emiratis, for good reason, have felt that they were in a different category because of the depth of cooperation they had. They look at the Qataris with some degree of, of concern. And they say, how could we be displaced by the Qataris? After all, look at all the mischief the Qataris have done in the region. But I think the Qataris now are focused 100% on rebuilding their relations with Saudi Arabia, rebuilding, using their strong anchor with the United States to help do so. And then the question becomes, how do you make sure that the Iranians don't provide a, a problem for them? Because after all, as I said, the Iranians and the Qataris share this gas field. And the Iranians who are heavily sanctioned could presumably one day go to the, the Qataris and say, um, it's a shared field. And where's our share of what you've been taking? And by the way, we have 90 million citizens and you have 300,000. So this is not this is not about parity. In that instance, the Qataris want to be really close to the United States. They sure do. I was my next question was going to be, what do they do about Iran? And you know, until the other day, I was calling it Iran, like most Americans, and we're not allowed to say that anymore. Apparently, Iran. It is Iran. <laughs> uh, look, I think that the Qataris have been dealing with the Iranians for a long time. They don't like them. They don't trust them. They don't think they're going away. And most profoundly, they don't think that even the majority of their challenge with Iran is the government of the Islamic Republic. You could have regime change in Iran and the Qataris will still be terrified of Iran. Because of their military supremacy. Because it's a big country with real capacity. It's not called the Persian Gulf for nothing. Yeah, highly educated. And, you know, this is a real place and it's right on the shores of Qatar, essentially. And Qatar is a, a, a small, wealthy place. And there's a sense of vulnerability. I think throughout the Arab Gulf, there's a sense of vulnerability with the Iranians. And so the effort is engage enough so you don't antagonize them, but also have the United States as insurance policy, if you need it. So they want to, you know, frankly, the Gulf states want to be the good cop. They want the U.S. to be the bad cop, but they also don't want to see any violence because they're sure if there's violence, 
the violence is going to be in their soil and not in the United States. So they're sort of balancing there. And I think the Qataris, more than most, as I say, because of the gas field, are feeling they have to get that balance right and, and triangulating with the Saudis, the Iranians, and the U.S. is the way they do it. And, you know, you said that the Biden administration's invested in this. You know, how important long-term is Qatar for the United States? Uh, and are members of Congress on board with this? They weren't a while back. They were Well, some are. You know, Chris Murphy is, is close to the foreign ministry, he says. At least when he was on my podcast, he suggested he was. Mm -hmm. I think that it's certainly... Democratic members of Congress are much more comfortable with the Qataris than they are with the Emiratis and the Saudis. Explain that. The Qataris have some aspects of their foreign policy which have been attractive. And one of them for many years has been the Qataris subtly supported Islamic political parties and argued that they were in favor of, of democratization in the Middle East. Al Jazeera has argued that it's all about free speech and democratization, although Frankly, it's about free speech when you're talking about politics outside of Qatar and Al Jazeera doesn't talk about Qatar. But, you know, I think that when it comes to issues of democratization and human rights, the Qataris have much more to work with than, for instance, the Saudis. And I think there's also been a sense that as the Trump administration got very close to Saudi Arabia and arguably the UAE. The Qataris nurtured ties with Democrats who thought the Trump administration was misguided and, and built some, some common ground with them. You know, Secretary Blinken in late November signed, you know, as part of the U.S.-Qatar strategic dialogue in Doha, signed a letter of intent expressing intentions to build on World Cup legacies through bilateral cooperation and knowledge exchange. Is this something that we're really invested in long term? And do you think the Congress will support it? So we start off with in the long run, we're all dead, right? One of the things that's going to happen over the next 30 years is going to be there's going to be an energy transition, which is going to profoundly shape the politics, economics and social relations of the Gulf. In that, Qatar is mostly a gas exporter and not an oil exporter. And there are a lot of people who think that gas is going to be a very important transition fuel and that Qatar is going to be a lot more central to the global energy transition than some of the lower cost producers of oil elsewhere in the Gulf. That takes you maybe through 2040, 2050. And then you may have a very different situation. Now, you may say long term only goes to to 2035. And I would argue that into 2035, the U.S. is going to care a lot about Qatar. It's going to care a lot about Iran nonproliferation. It's going to care about having a presence and the Eludate Air Base that the U.S. has in, in Qatar is an important part of the U.S. regional presence for global energy security. But it seems to me that, that one of the important questions to ask is, as we go through the energy transition, how does the way the United States think about global energy security change? How does the way China thinks about global energy security change? How do U.S. allies in Asia think about global energy security and how does that change? It seems to me that when you start projecting out to 
2035, 2040, you start to have the possibility that you'd have a really different architecture in mind. I think certainly for the next 10 years and probably more, Qatar is going to really matter not only to the United States, to Europe, and to, to partners and allies in Asia. So that's why we're there. That's why we're supporting them. That's why we're signing letters of intent. That's why the relationship is progressing. Look, and to have a small, strategically located government that is really eager to be helpful to the United States is great. You don't have to go through a lot of bureaucracy. You don't, I mean, if you need stuff done, you have the number of the person who can get stuff done. And frankly, a lot of American policymakers like having somebody you can count on. When you have countries either with, as like the United States with an unwieldy Congress, an unwieldy legislative branch, when you have countries that are, are sort of messy and large royal families with their own internal politics, that's a different issue. You know, one, one thing that I recall clearly is, is we had somebody in our program who was born in Israel and we were going to Kuwait. And somebody in the embassy said, we can't have somebody who's born in Israel get into Kuwait. I said, why? He's an American citizen. He said, but it says in his passport he's born in Israel. Parliament would never allow it. I know a story about a woman who was working with the former prime minister of Lebanon who couldn't meet the prime minister of Lebanon in the country he was the prime minister of because she had an Israel stamp in her passport and they had to meet in Saudi Arabia. Those problems don't happen in a small place like Qatar. If you need something done, it can be done. And I think U.S. governments find that helpful. So dual U.S. Israeli citizens can go to Qatar, can participate, no problem. Yeah. So, so that's another point where we can agree with them. But then on well, things- can go to Saudi Arabia, frankly. Sure. And, you know, I mean, the last time I was in the UAE, I was stunned at the number of Israelis reading uh, Yediot Achronot around the pool. Right. You told me that. I remember. I mean, so things are changing in the Gulf, and that's why we need to be aware. But yet, you know, during this World Cup, things came out like, you know, the Qataris wouldn't let U.S. players or players around the world wear armbands promoting gay pride. And clearly, we consider that an important thing. Are we able to overlook things like that? My own view is that this issue of, of gay rights is an issue that the Russians in particular are trying to exploit by talking about family values. And you're seeing a lot of concern about it, not only in the Gulf, other, other places in the Arab world. The way it's portrayed is Americans are trying to recruit children to this campaign and destroy families. You see some of it in American politics, that part of American politics is picked up in the Gulf sometimes. And, and I've been in cars with people who listen to Fox News on their radios in, in Saudi Arabia. But I think the Russians also fan those flames. I remember being at a conference uh, the Russians put on in, in Morocco 10 years ago, and they had a bunch of Islamists there. And the argument that the Russians were putting forward to, to be a little bit crass is to the Islamists, they said, look, we have so much in common. You hate Jews, we hate Jews. You hate gays, we hate gays. Let's work together. And so what I think- What a toxic- But I think that part of this, right, is an effort by Russia to undermine the US presence. 
an effort by regional governments to undermine a push for liberalization democracy, which the United States talks about. And here's a way to get the population to, to push back on it. So I think to some degree, you have governments that are exploiting these issues to undermine liberalization by picking an emotional issue that, that resonates with people. As I say, it's a, it is an emotional issue in the United States. And that's why you see politicians in some parts of the country embracing that. And it's an emotional issue in the Arab world. And I mean, for the Saudis to go around and confiscate children's toys that have rainbows on them is insanity. And yet this is something that shows, look, we're, we're, we're protecting you against these people who are trying to, to undermine your children and their future and your families. I think there's a lot of cynicism involved. And I think when we look at what the Qataris are doing, I think we should interpret it not that they persecute homosexuals, because frankly, I have gay friends who have lived in Qatar happily and contentedly. But there's something on the political level that people are exploiting and the governments are, the regional governments, I think all of them, frankly, are exploiting it as much as anybody. So if you have the Russians fanning these toxic flames on the one hand, isn't it incumbent on the United States to come in on the other hand and say, hey, this isn't the way? Blinken's over there signing declarations. You know, he might want to put a bug in their ear. This isn't how we roll, right? I mean, I agree. And, and certainly one of the things that we've seen in the past, for example, is you've had U.S. embassies put up flags for, for, for Pride Day and things like that. But in Republican administrations, it's different, right? And, and to me, it seems that, that one of the challenges we have as a country is the priority we place on gay rights fluctuates radically between Republican Democratic administrations. Now, one of the arguments I've made to, to, to folks visiting from the Gulf in, in several instances is I get that that's happening at the leadership level, but look at the polling on the youth level. Youth are not divided on this issue in the United States. This is an issue which is clearly moving and it's moving in one direction. And I think this is going to be a growing irritant just because of the demographics. And I think they need to deal with it, embrace it. And look, when I've spoken to people in the Gulf about you know, gay rights issues in particular, the stories they tell are about all these protected spaces, safe spaces, which in some cases are public, but which are protected. And then stories of these big public campaigns that are meant to whip people into a frenzy. I think, to my mind, the biggest challenge in the Middle East is we have seen over the last more than 50 years, a rising tide of intolerance. The Middle East used to be a more tolerant place. And we see it from Israel to Jordan to the Gulf. And to me, that the answer has to be greater tolerance. But I look at our politics and I see a lot of signs of greater tolerance and diversity. And frankly, I see a lot of signs of people who feel deeply threatened by tolerance. And you see that in the Gulf as well. 
Well, one of the interesting things that we learned from this last midterm election and through the Harvard University Youth Poll is that 18 to 29-year-olds, the number one issue that they really care about is having rights taken away from them. So that really tracks with your saying, young people in this country you know, want the rights that they're given by being American citizens. I, look, I think th I think there's a broader problem and it certainly affects the United States and it affects the Middle East. Politics are becoming a politics of grievance. I don't think you can have a healthy society that's built on a politics of grievance. But I see it in my own country and I see it as a constant rallying point in the Middle East. I was talking to, to Tamar Herman, the Israeli pollster for my podcast that right. just came out this week. But she talked about how Israel is evolving into a politics of grievance. I think that's a broader problem that, that we all have to figure out a way to deal with. And it's partly driven by social media and it's partly driven by people's ability to, to choose individually what, what they like and, and people choose things that give them an emotional response. But it seems to me that a world that is driven by a politics of grievance can't be a healthy world. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And in the case of Israel, you know, we're seeing a rise in anti-Semitism in the United States and throughout the world. And yet Israel, through this last election, clearly seems like it's trying, as you say, becoming more intolerant. Well, and even, even within Israel, and, and one of the things that, that Tamar Herman was talking about is, you know, the children and grandchildren of Sephardim, of, of Mizrahi Jews, of Jews from Middle Eastern origins. Jews of Arab descent, yeah. Still hold grudges two and three generations later of how their ancestors were deprived of the rightful place in Israel, and they're demanding compensation. They're demanding- Deprived by Ashkenazi Jews. Ashkenazi Jews. And that, that, that this is becoming overwhelming issue in Israeli politics, this sense of resentment of the old Ashkenazi elite. Again, at, at some point, there needs to be an aspirational positive policy. And I look throughout the region, frankly, Saudi Arabia is one of the places which for all of its repression, and there's a lot of repression going on in Saudi Arabia, there's also this deep aspirational sense in terms of entertainment, in terms of, of economic opportunity, in terms of, you know, we're, we're going to make this place better. You could argue that Qatar using the World Cup to drive progress and development. You know, at least in some of these places, you're seeing some departure from a politics of grievance. It's strange that the places we see it most effectively are in authoritarian states that try not to have politics. Your work is in a tough neighborhood. There's no doubt about it. And when we talk about repression, we haven't yet really spoken about Iran. Their repression was highlighted by the U.S.-Iranian soccer match that garnered a lot of attention in terms of politics and protests going on in Iran. What's your read on all this? Iran's in a tough place as a society. The revolution ran out of its ideological gas years ago. A lot of Iranians are tired of being isolated in the world. You look around and you don't see a lot of positive examples in the neighborhood of, of uprisings that turned out well. You have a really impressive array of 
forces from the security services that penetrate not only the society, but completely penetrate the economy. So for Iranians themselves, how you get to a better place is unclear. And, and, you know, there are a lot of, the Islamists were not the only ones who made the revolution in 1979, but they took it over. And I think there are some Iranians who wonder if we had a different government, would it actually be a better one or would it be a more thuggish one? I think our ability in the United States to shape how that goes is really, really small. And I don't think there's a clear Iranian view of where to take it all. It doesn't feel to me like the protests now are likely to be the beginning of something big, but it creates fissures and cracks. It, it undermines the resilience of the government. Ayatollah Khamenei is, you know, in his 80s, getting into his mid 80s. He's not been well. There will be a leadership transition, I think, in the next several years. What that looks like, what else is happening along the way, how are you going to deal with the economic discontent in the country? There are a lot of things that the leadership's going to have to deal with, and they currently have a, a president who's not very charismatic, not very well-liked. So I think the Iranians have a tough road ahead of them. I think we can hope for the best for the Iranian people. We can't shape how this comes out, but I think we have to be ready to be helpful at some point and guard ourselves for, for what may be a, an unsettled situation because there are all sorts of perils for us in an unsettled situation as well. Well, yeah. I mean, one of the top questions I was asked by friends and family during Thanksgiving holiday was, you know, just how close is Iran to having a nuclear weapon and why won't they give up this, you know, when their people are not having food and jobs and all the things that, you know, a highly educated Persian public would want, what the heck are they doing? You had a different Thanksgiving than I did. Everybody asked me what kind of bread I was going to make and when I was going to bake it. <laughs> now, look, Iran is not far, but the question is, would they want to cross that threshold? And if you have a device and a delivery system, what does that get you? And I think there's a reasonable judgment to be made that the Iranians get a whole lot more being on the brink than crossing the threshold. Because if you're on the brink, you get a lot of the benefits and you pay fewer costs. And if you cross the threshold, you get fewer benefits and you pay more costs. So the Iranians don't know what we know about their nuclear program. Uh, I think the Iranians have generally been cautious. I wouldn't make predictions that of where this is going to go. And I certainly wouldn't take my eye off the ball. But I also would not rush to say the sky is falling right now. One thing I, I felt strongly, and I mean, you and I have talked about this, that an Iran that is completely unconstrained by international agreements is a much more dangerous proliferation threat. What kinds of agreements can you get? Look, the agreements aren't going to be perfect. And I think the Iranians are going to misbehave. But even so, completely unconstrained by agreements, without inspectors, without any insight, I think puts you in a really 
dangerous place where you're much more liable to be surprised in a bad way. Then unsatisfactory agreements, you're trying to constantly improve, but you're still in a dialogue and you're still gaining insights and you still have tools to use. John, as always, really fascinating. And thank you for all these insights. A lot to think about here. Thanks so much. Thank you, Andrew. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 